welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Legal analysts have been anticipating that special counsel Robert Mueller would be requesting an interview with President Trump. It's a natural part of the course of Mueller's thorough and painstaking investigation. And now several news sources are reporting that the interview could happen very soon, possibly within weeks. Trump has said he's willing to be interviewed, but his attorneys apparently do not agree. They're discussing compromises to avoid an in-person encounter between Trump and Mueller, according to NBC News. My guest is Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, is there any doubt that the president will have to submit to an interview with Mueller under oath or a grand jury subpoena will be issued? I think it's pretty fair to say that at least in some context, he's going to be questioned. Um, a simple uh, re- responding to written questions isn't going to be enough. I can't fathom that uh, Mr. Mueller would view that as sufficient, given the nature of this investigation. The question, of course, becomes, what is the context? How limited and restricted are the questions and the topics? And what kind of negotiated agreement both the president's personal attorneys and Mr. Mueller's team um, come to beforehand so as to make this a voluntary interview under oath, as opposed to Mr. Mueller actually having to take the steps of issuing a grand jury subpoena and bringing the president before a grand jury. We should mention that legally Trump could take the fifth, but there's a political risk. Correct. I mean, I, it would be political suicide, more or less, for the president at this point to refuse to be interviewed, to take the fifth and refuse to answer questions, given how he has very broad, boldly and broadly and definitively stated there was no collusion, there was no crime, there was no obstruction. For him to now try to invoke the fifth while something he is legally permitted to do would nonetheless look horrible from political perception standpoint and would just devastate him in terms of his ability to govern. So let's talk now about what you talked about before the format. Let's talk a little a bit more about that. So you just said that you think that Mueller would not accept written question and answers. There's the possibility of an open-ended in-person interview or a more restricted in-person interview. Is he likely to agree to a restricted interview? In other words, only certain categories would be brought up. I guess it depends on what Mr. Mueller knows that we obviously in the public don't know about. So how much information he's already gotten from other depositions, other interviews, grand jury testimony that gives him context and how much he truly needs to question the president as opposed to simply trying to go after a narrow scope of questions to see how the president responds, but already having everything else he already needs in the background context. So I personally, if I were the president's attorneys, I certainly would never agree to that open-ended interview, especially with a client like Donald Trump, who knows where his mind could go into this context, who knows how it could go off on a tangent. You wouldn't want him to do that. So for Mr. Mueller, it depends on what he already knows and how much he truly needs Uh, certain factual information from the president, as opposed to just trying to get a sense of how the president would answer certain questions. Is it likely that Mueller would do the interview himself or have one of his top people do it? It's a good question. I think Mueller, out of respect for the office, would want to handle it largely himself, 
as opposed to giving it to one of his dream team attorneys. Certainly they could handle it, but I think he would want to try to offer some measure of respect and the prestige of having it to be the special counsel, not someone else, questioning someone with the office of the president itself. So I think it would be a fair assumption to make that he'll do it himself. Many people may not realize that it wasn't just President Bill Clinton that submitted to questioning under oath or interviews. Um, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, and Gerald Ford all either submitted to interviews or testified before a grand jury. Why is the testimony before a grand jury so much more difficult? Uh, In a grand jury, you can't have your lawyers there, by and large. So especially with a client like Donald Trump, again, you got to be worried a bit about how he'll answer certain questions, whether or not he'll go off on a tangent if he doesn't have his lawyers there to guide him a bit, which you you do for any client who has that type of uh, speaking style. Um, But you also have the issue you can't necessarily invoke the Fifth Amendment to to protect yourself against the crimination in a grand jury proceeding, unlike in any other interview. So it's, it'd be a more a bigger risk to have the president sit before a grand jury. I mean, Bill Clinton did it. Bill Clinton was a trained attorney, and he stumbled in a grand jury proceeding. So if he's going to stumble, you've got to be worried, if you're Donald Trump's lawyer, it's about how the president will handle it. And look, look what that uh, happened after, uh, after his stumble there that led to his, um, the impeachment proceedings. Now, Exactly. In about a minute here, what would be the top question on your mind if you were Robert Mueller? What would be the first question you wanted to get answered? Did you know about the June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower? And if you did, what was the context of your knowledge? You know, there are, and in, in just about 30 seconds, explain the prep for a normal deposition is so rigorous. What would the preparation for a deposition like this be? You'd have to, and part of it depends on what the client has actually done, but you have to prepare them for any number of angles that the uh, prosecutor will approach in terms of how they'll ask questions. You have to get them to get their answers down to simple concise and direct responses and not to go off on a tangent because that's how you get into trouble. Thank you, Bradley Moss, partner at Mark Zaid. Did a federal appeals court strike down an FCC decision to preempt state laws that restricted the expansion of municipal broadband? That's correct. So under uh, the Obama-era FCC, uh, attempted to prevent states from preventing municipalities from engaging in municipal broadband. So it's basically telling states that they couldn't tell their cities uh, not to get involved in municipal broadband. And the Sixth Circuit ruled that that decision overstepped the boundaries of federal law because uh, generally federal agencies don't have the ability to tell states what they can and can't do with regard to uh, portions of the state apparatus, meaning the municipal governments themselves. That's a little bit different, I think, than states reaching out and trying to regulate private entities like Comcast and uh, Verizon. Uh, General rules of preemption state that when uh, federal and state policy uh, directly conflict, the supremacy clause gives the tie to the feds. Let's talk about the different ways that the states are approaching this. In New York, one bill proposed would require Internet providers to adhere to net neutrality principles to land state contracts. Assemblywoman Patricia Fahey said the restrictions would apply even if the behaviors took place outside New York. Is that taking the issue a little too far? 
So I actually think this is the most interesting of the many uh, attempts by states to enact net neutrality. Uh, what I think is really interesting about it is the fact that it's using an indirect method, right? It's uh, not telling providers directly that they have to engage in net neutral principles, but it's making it a voluntary condition of receiving uh, state funds. That may actually survive uh, general preemption rule in the way that uh, direct state legislative uh, command wouldn't. Uh, but uh, then it raises the problem under the Dormant Commerce Clause of whether New York can use these conditions in order to reach behavior beyond New York State's borders. I think they'd be in much better shape if they simply limited the condition to uh, activities that the companies undertake while in New York. So in California, there are two bills, and one of them California State Senator Scott Weiner introduced, and that would only apply to behavior within the state. So that, you think, has a better chance. I think that's probably the the best uh, chance of all of them. Um, and it's worth noting that this is not the first time that states and feds have clashed over something like this. The um, uh, Minnesota attempted about 10 years ago to regulate VoIP providers like Vonage on the theory that this looks, walks, and talks like a traditional telephone service. It just happens to be over the Internet rather than over traditional phone lines. And so if states can regulate uh, telephone services should be able to regulate uh, VoIP providers as well. Uh, the FCC said no and tried to preempt state regulation, and ultimately they were successful in that. So, Dan, with a large state like California, no matter what a law says about it applying only within the state, it can reverberate outside the state. And so if there are bills in California and New York and, let's say, Washington, will that affect the Internet significantly? Yeah, so it might, right? Because um, assuming that California succeeds in uh, tying its funding to the uh, practice of net neutral principles while operating within California, then a company like Verizon would have to uh, decide whether it's possible to segment its network management practices and practice one set of rules in California and another set of rules for the rest of the country. Or maybe it's easier just to apply the California policy across the United States, right? That's why California winds up uh, de facto setting things like uh, air quality management standards, right? Because they hold auto providers to a very strict rule and companies find it easier to manufacture cars uh, across the country to meet California standards than to create one set of cars to sell in California and another for the rest of the nation. And just last month, more than a dozen states asked the Supreme Court to block a California law that required egg sellers to abide by certain guidelines in the treatment of hens. So uh, then their argument was that attempts to regulate industry in other states. So I guess we'll see where that goes. Um, Now, let's talk about the lawsuits that are coming, because the FCC released the final text of the net neutrality rule last week. So the lawsuits challenging it can proceed. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is leading a coalition of other states' attorneys general in a lawsuit. Which has a better chance of success, these lawsuits or the state laws? That may be a very tough question, but... Yeah, so... um the 
the state legal challenge, I think, is going to map the uh, legal challenge that uh, Silicon Valley and other industry players are bringing against it, which uh, look at uh, challenge the FCC's action on two grounds. One is the legal ground saying the FCC lacked legal authority to uh, reclassify broadband as an information service. My sense is that's probably uh, a non-starter of an argument, given that the FCC was simply returning to uh, the rules that governed prior to 2015. The other... Um, set of arguments or procedural hurdles, the idea that uh, if the uh, the FCC could do what it did, but it didn't follow the appropriate uh, procedural uh, requirements when doing so. Depending on how that argument shakes out, that may be the only chance um, that uh, opponents have. But as we saw in the last round of these debates, right, the administrative law is always uh, stacked in the agency's favor. There's a sense that as long as the agency is crossing its T's and dotting its I's the way it's supposed to, these types of policy questions generally get left to the agency rather than to the court to decide. So I think a legal challenge is going to be an uphill battle. What about Senator Edward Markey from Massachusetts, who's leading an effort to launch a Congressional Review Act resolution in an attempt to reverse the net neutrality rules that Pi put in, into place? Yeah, I think as a matter of politics, it's a pretty smart move because it's trying to get each member of Congress on record as uh, discussing whether they uh, are uh, supportive of or opposing to the FCC's action. That said, I don't expect any substantive change because for the Congressional Review Act to uh, succeed, it has to pass both the House and the Senate and either be signed by the president or uh, have his veto overridden. I don't see the president supporting this at all. Dan, more than 20 states introduced broadband privacy rules last year in response to Congress's decision to roll back Obama-era FCC rules that required Internet providers to ask permission before collecting personal information for commercial uses. How is that going as far as the states? How are they succeeding with that? Well, so that's actually a much more interesting question of federalism because historically we've allowed states to experiment with uh, data privacy and data security issues at the state level that we haven't done uh, with regard to things like broadband network management practices. So there's a sense in which states have been operating, uh, by doing this, are operating within the confines of uh, regulatory authority that they've traditionally had. That having been said, I think it's possible to read the uh, recent net neutrality order as preempting even some of those as well, because the um, uh, the language of the in the preemption portion of the statute or the of the order seems to reach really really broadly uh, to prevent anything that's inconsistent with the FCC's approach here. So we'll see how that develops. And Dan, I mentioned that the final rule is out or the final text. Have you looked at it to see if it varies to any degree from what was proposed? I've not done a line-by-line comparison, but it, it looks to me like the general thrust of the order uh, fits and matches uh, what uh, Chairman Pai released uh, just prior to the Thanksgiving break. I think to the extent that there's uh, minor variations, it's responses to the uh, points made by the uh, dissenting commissioners in order to make sure that the order is uh, as robust as it can be. And in about uh, 25 seconds here, do you find that the net neutrality rules are now crossing uh, partisan lines, that people are, both Republicans and Democrats, are having problems with the lack of rules? So it, um, I, I think one of the big uh, points that came out was seeing that Nebraska became the first uh, Republican-leaning state to uh, join this uh, state rebellion against the FCC. So All I right. think it's suggesting that... 
Thank you, Dan. Sorry to have to leave it there. Dan Lyons, a professor at Boston College Law School. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.